0: Our guest today is Noam Brown. Noam is currently a research scientist at OpenAI, working on planning, reasoning, and self-play in language models. As a PhD student at CMU, Noam built the first AI to defeat top humans in no-limit poker. He created Libratus and Pluribus, which defeated top human poker professionals in human versus machine competitions. They brought us, received the Marvin Minsky medal for outstanding achievements in AI. Pluribus was on the cover of science magazine and was a runner up for science breakthrough of the year for 2019. Noam was named one of the MIT tech reviews, 35 innovators under 35. After his PhD, Noam joined Facebook AI research where he developed Cicero, the first AI to achieve human level performance in the strategy game, diplomacy. Noam, so great to have you here with us. Welcome to the show. Thank
1: you for having me, it's great to be here.
0: Noam, before diving into today's conversation, I'd like to thank our podcast sponsors, Index Ventures and Weights and Biases. Index Ventures is a venture capital firm that invests in exceptional entrepreneurs across all stages, from seed to IPO. With offices in San Francisco, New York, and London, the firm backs founders across a variety of verticals, including AI, SaaS, fintech, security, gaming, and consumer. On a personal note, Index is an investor in covariant, and I couldn't recommend them any higher. Weights and Biases is an ML ops platform that helps you train models faster with experiment tracking, model and dataset versioning, and model management. They're used by OpenAI, NVIDIA, and almost every lab releasing a large model. In fact, many, if not all, of my students at Berkeley and colleagues at Covarrant are big users of weights and biases. Now, Noam, in 1997, IBM's Deep Blue beat Garry Kasparov, the human world champion, in chess. But it took until 2017, 20 years later, for a computer to beat the best human players at poker. And of course, that was the AI you build, Libratus, and then later Cicero. I want to dive into about, you know, what made chess hard, but what made poker so much harder. But before we do that, why even care about games? Why should AI be playing games? Why should we as AI researchers care about AI that play games?
1: It's a great question you know, games have served as benchmarks and challenge problems for the field all the way back to the birth of AI. And I think there's a few good reasons for this. So one is that it's really easy to create a benchmark that your technique is designed to address. So, you know, this is like the classic overfitting problem where like, you know, you develop this technique and it does really well at this this particular thing. And so you create a benchmark that like, you know, shows how effective your technique is but games existed before the field of AI came along. And so these are games that, you know, are played by humans, developed by humans. And and so they're natural benchmarks that are, you know, a little bit harder to overfit to. More importantly, games are really easy to score. It's really easy to tell if your technique is, is working or not. And it's really easy to compare it to other people's techniques. And it's also really easy to compare it to humans. So you have these human experts that have spent their entire lives reaching the peak of human performance in this particular domain. And so if you're able to make an AI that's able to beat these humans, then you're able to show definitively that you've achieved superhuman performance in some limited way. I think that's like a really convincing signal. I mean, it's, I think a very common problem with any sort of research field is it's very difficult to know if you're making progress. And to have this like clear signal showing that like you're able to beat humans in this domain, I think it's unambiguous and it it makes it easy to signal to other researchers that are not as familiar with the area that like, okay, this technique actually
0: works well. No, I really like what you pointed out there that the games have been around for much longer than we've been doing AI research. And so they're very natural challenges that are not, AI researchers cannot choose them. to to cater to their needs, to show something off. They have to solve the problem that already exists. Now, when we think about these problems, as I said, 97, Deep Blue beats Garry Kasparov in chess. That was a big wake-up moment. for the world, I think, wow, this is becoming possible. But then it took another 20 years to crack poker. What made chess hard? How was that solved? But then what makes poker so much harder even?
1: Yeah, I mean, chess was a big deal. I mean, this took researchers decades. You know, people have been working on chess since the 50s and the success in the 90s was was a huge deal. I think the techniques that were developed ultimately were designed to succeed in chess. And I think this is one of the problems that you have when you have this like well-defined benchmark that there's a risk that the techniques that you develop become overfit to that problem and and only really succeed at that problem. And you actually see this even with Go. That the techniques that were used in chess, primarily alpha-beta pruning, was really, really effective for that domain, but wouldn't even extend to Go because the branching factor in Go is so much larger. You know, in chess you have maybe 30 possible moves, whereas in Go you have over 300. And, you know, that leads to an exponential blow blowup in, in the tree size. And so even getting these techniques to go from chess to Go ended up being a, a huge challenge and you had to develop all these new techniques... But then even those techniques wouldn't extend to poker. And the fundamental problem with, with poker is that unlike chess and unlike Go, it's a game of imperfect information. So there is information that you have access to that the other player doesn't. And there is information that the other player has access to that, that you don't know. And you have to be able to reason about that. You have to be able to understand that if you have, you know, pocket aces, you maybe have a full house or something... The other person doesn't know that you have a full house. And so you can bet money and there's a chance that they'll call you. And at the same time, like maybe you have a really bad hand. Maybe you have nothing, but you know that they don't know that you have nothing. And so you have to reason about the fact that like, okay, well, in this situation, I could still bet and make money off of them because they might fold and be thinking that I have a good hand. So that situation, that asymmetry of, of information doesn't come up in chess or go and it ends up being a huge challenge to overcome and you know there is i think one of the one of the major challenges and maybe the best way to understand this is that in a game like chess or go the probability of an action doesn't affect that action's value like the value of an action is independent of the probability that you play that action so if you open with a sicilian defense it doesn't matter if you do it 10 percent of the time or 100 percent of the time the expected value of doing that is going to stay the same. But in poker, the probability of an action, the value of an action goes down the more probable it is, like the more often you do it. So for example, bluffing could be a really high expected value action, could get you a lot of value. But if you bluff too often, then the other player is going to pick up on the fact that you're bluffing a lot and will adapt to you and the value of bluffing will actually decrease. So that is, I think, the fundamental challenge that had to be addressed in poker and that the techniques that were developed for chess and go were just not equipped to handle that conceptual shift
0: now it seems like there's two related big new challenges there one is imperfect information you don't know the cards of the other players and they don't know your cards and then the fact that that implies you have to play this probabilistic strategy you you should not play something deterministic because become too predictable and they can exploit you, right? So when I think about the algorithms that we use in AI, the fact that you're forced to be probabilistic seems a big challenge because when I look at reinforced learning algorithms, the standard reinforced learning algorithms that learn from trial and error, robots learning to stand up or learn to play Go and so forth, they, they all tend to naturally converge onto a specific strategy. They don't need to keep a spectrum of options alive at all times and keep playing them. So how do you do that? It seems like you can't just run standard reinforcement learning to solve poker. You need to do something else. What did you do?
1: Yeah, there's, there's two ways to get around this problem. So I, I would actually say that, that there, there are two separate issues. Well, there are two main issues that come up with poker. One is this asymmetry of information. And the other is the fact that you need to play this mixed strategy, we say. Uh, you need to play this like probabilistic strategy where you're, you're randomizing what you're doing. And those end up being related, actually. They're kind of intertwined. Now, there's two ways to, to address this problem. And you're right that, like, you know, the standard reinforcement learning algorithms that are typically taught in, like, intro to reinforcement learning, they they tend to converge to a single action with the 100% problem. Like, there's some well-defined optimal action and you converge to that and everything's great. But there's no single optimal action in poker as it's traditionally represented. So there's two ways to get around this. One is these regret minimization techniques um, or like self-play techniques that are specifically designed to converge to a mixed randomized strategy that is unexploitable. So I I should step back and say like, what we're trying to compute in the first place is called a Nash equilibrium. So this is a strategy where even if your opponent knows what you're playing, you will not lose in the long run. Like you know, I think maybe the, the simplest way to understand this is with rock, paper, scissors. So rock, paper, scissors, it's a two-player, zero-sum game. You can frame it as an imperfect information game because one way to think about, one way to, to you know formalize rock, paper, scissors is I'm taking some action, either throwing rock, paper, or scissors. You don't observe what that action is, and then you have to take an action, either rock, paper, or scissors, without knowing what I did. So if you view it that way, it's equivalence to the way people normally play rock, paper, scissors. And um, you can see that it's an imperfect information game in that in that formalization. The Nash equilibrium in rock, paper, scissors is to randomize equally between throwing rock, paper, and scissors with one third probability each. Because if you play that strategy, then even if your opponent knows that you're doing that, there's nothing they can do to beat you in the long run. You know, If you were to play a million rounds of, with this strategy, you're, you're probably going to break even in the long run. Now, I should say, like, this Nash equilibrium obviously is not going to lead to you winning an expectation in it, but, you know, we're using this as a simple example. When you go to a more complicated game like poker, it, it's, if you're playing the Nash equilibrium, it's actually really difficult for the other player to figure out how to counter that. And so you'll end up guaranteeing that you're not going to lose an expectation. And also in practice, you'll end up winning an expectation because your opponent will make mistakes in how they're countering your Nash equilibrium strategy. And of course, if both players play the Nash equilibrium, then they'll both break even in the long run in expectation. Okay, so that's what we're trying to approximate. We're trying to approximate this Nash equilibrium strategy that guarantees in the long run we will not lose in a two-player zero-sum game. Now, the way we do that, the simplest way to do that is with something called fictitious play. And it's actually a surprisingly simple algorithm. So in rock, paper, scissors, what it boils down to is like you start with some random arbitrary strategy, like maybe always throw a rock. And then you look and see like, what is the strategy that would do optimally against that strategy? So if one player is always throwing rock, then the optimal counter to that is to always throw paper. And so that's the second uh, strategy. And now you're going to take the average of those two. And your new strategy is 50% rock, 50% paper. And now you look at, okay, what's the strategy that does optimally against a player that's throwing rock half the time and paper half the time? Well, the optimal action in response to that is to always throw paper. And so now you're going to update your strategy as like the average of always throwing paper, always throwing paper, and always throwing rock. So you're taking the average over, you know, all the different uh, strategies that you've played so far. So now you're throwing two thirds paper, one third rock. And now again, you look at what's what's the optimal response to that. Well, the optimal response to that is to throw scissors. And so now you're doing one quarter scissors, one half paper, one quarter rock. And if you keep iterating in this way, you will actually converge to one third rock, one third paper, one third scissors, you'll converge the Nash equilibrium in the long run. Now, the the way it does, this this is called fictitious play. It's very effective. It ends up being uh, kind of slow, especially in really large games like poker. And so we end up using more sophisticated versions of it. The one that we're, we're using in Libratus and Pluribus is called counterfactual regret minimization. But in the long run, it will get you to the same endpoint through a similar process, this self-play, you know, having one agent play against the other and figuring out how to beat all the prior strategies. It will do something similar to that. It will just get there faster.
0: And this is really interesting, Noam. Now for rock, paper, scissors, it's clear yeah. from your explanations and probably many people knew ahead of time, equal probability on all three of them makes it impossible to beat you. Now, it sounds like you're saying poker has a similar thing, it's a bit more complex, but can you still analyze it? When, when your system is done learning, can you look at it and say, for example, when Libratus or Cicero has pocket aces in, let's say a heads up Texas Hold'em situation, can you inspect it and ask it what with a pocket aces, what's the probability of, let's say, raising or folding? I mean, does it even have a probability of possibly folding when it has pocket aces? Like, Can you inspect that and, and get an intuition of what is the optimal way to play?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so, so what you'll end up with is, you know, you'll end up with a strategy that's like the average over everything you've done. And as you keep iterating, it will converge to the Nash equilibrium. And so you'll have this strategy and you can inspect and say like, okay, well, you know, what should I do if I have pocket aces? Well, look at all the previous iterations that you've done. Look at all the, all the times you've been in a situation where you had pocket aces and what did you do in those prior strategies? And you know, interestingly, there there will be like some really really tiny, vanishingly small probability that you will fold pocket aces because on the very first iteration, you know, the bot had no idea what it was doing, and so it would just play completely randomly, and so um so there was like one one a uh, small probability that it would fold pocket aces on that very first iteration. It quickly realizes that that's a a bad idea, and it will not do that in the future iterations. So now I, I should I should also caveat this by saying like okay. You know, Rock, Paper, Scissors is a really tiny game. You're going to encounter all the states that you could be in in a really tiny game every iteration. But when you're going to like a very large game like poker, you know, there's tens of the 161 different decision points that you could encounter in a game of heads up, no limit, Texas, hold'em poker. You're not going to encounter all of those situations during self play when you're having these two bots play against each other. And so you need some way to generalize between similar situations and the way you do that is there's actually a few ways you can do it we, we didn't use neural nets in libratus and pluribus but the best way to do it is actually with neural nets and so you can when you find yourself in a situation like maybe you have pocket aces and the board came out like five eight nine of hearts and you're trying to decide what to do and you've never encountered that situation before what you're going to do is you know leverage the fact that you've been in similar situations before. And so you can interpolate between those similar sa- situations, understand like, okay, well, you know, I was in this similar situation before, I was in this other similar situation before, this is what I did in those situations. And you can interpolate that to figure out what should you be doing in, in this particular situation.
0: Now, neural nets can help you with that interpolation. I'm wondering when you talk about essentially playing the average of everything you've done in the past, that that's how you're going to get to the Nash equilibrium, you actually have to keep all these past games around to go effectively look up what the average is? Or can you use a neural network to, in some sense, compress all the past games and automatically tell you in, in some summarization way, in this situation, this is what you did this fraction of the time?
1: That, that's a great question, yes. So yeah, essentially, yes, you can use a neural network to approximate that. And that's actually, so we have this paper called Deep Counterfactual Regret Minimization. This was the, the first regret minimization, like counterfactual regret minimization adaptation to deep neural nets. And the way we do it is we use two neural nets, one that is generalizing between similar situations, understanding, okay, on the current iteration, what should I be doing in these novel situations that I'm encountering based on what I've done in the past? And then also we have a second neural net that is approximating, okay, given what my strategy has been over all of these previous iterations, what is the average over all these different situations? Like trying to compress that average into a single neural net. So you don't have to like, you know, you find yourself in a novel situation, you don't have to go back through all the previous iterations and, and figure out what you did in those. You can just use the neural network that's approximating that average for you.
0: We'll get to this later, but almost like large language models compress everything that's written on the internet. This neural net is compressing everything that's in your past gameplay and can resummarize it for you. Now well, one thing I'm curious about, Noam, is when you think about the game of poker, you talk about this Nash equilibrium convergence. If we think about chess and Go, a big part of his search. You say in the current situation, what can I do? What can my opponent then do? And you try to figure out what's the possible sequence of things that could happen and from that, decide your current move by anticipating future the possible futures and then choosing the direction that gives you the best possible futures in poker does that play a role too
1: absolutely and i think a lot of people find this find this surprising and in fact i i found it surprising when i first started studying poker and understanding how the game really works at a high level to do research on it being able to plan ahead in poker is actually a is a critical part to success and it's a bit counterintuitive because you know it's a bit there's like this question of what does it mean to plan ahead in poker like in chess it's very clear you know you say okay if i move my bishop to this square and then you know my opponent is probably going to do this and then you can see what the board is going to look like after those sequence of actions and and you can understand whether that's a good board state for you or a bad board state but what does it mean to plan ahead in poker if you don't even know what your opponent is going to do next because you don't know what their cards are so i i want to get to that I, i guess i should take a step back and I want to emphasize that search is extremely important for being successful in, in these games. And it's not just true for poker. It's actually been extremely true for chess and Go as well. I think it's something that has been underestimated in the AI community for a long time. And But what I mean by search is this leveraging extra computation at test time. Like when you're actually playing the game, instead of just acting instantly, you try to Scale the amount of computation that you're doing in the moment in order to achieve better performance. That's what I mean by searcher planning. And you know, if you look at Go, I think this is actually um, Go. You can see the results quite clearly. There was this paper that came out on AlphaGo Zero. So this DeepMind created AlphaGo, which beat Lee Sedol. This was a landmark achievement that happened in 2016. And they followed this up with like an even stronger version of AlphaGo called AlphaGo Zero, which learned to play the game completely from scratch without any human data and so they showed you know this the full version of AlphaGo 0 with this uh the search algorithm that they're using called monte carlo tree search that achieves an elo rating of about 5000 now expert human players are around 3600 elo so to achieve 5000 elo is way way beyond what any human could possibly achieve i mean we're, we're talking to to give some context i think like an elo gap of 100 points like if you're 100 ELO points above somebody else, then that means that you're you're expected to win two thirds of the time. So to be 1,400 ELO points above another player, it means that you're just like always going to win. But if you take out the Monte Carlo tree search at test time, that is the, the search that it's doing at test time when it's actually playing the game and instead just have it act according to its raw neural network, raw policy network, the ELO rating drops to around 3,000. And so you need to have this planning process. You need to have this tree search process in order to achieve superhuman performance in go. And even today nobody has made a superhuman go bot that doesn't use some kind of search. A- even at test time, forget about training time, even just just at test time you need some kind of search to achieve superhuman performance in go so far. Now, I think a lot of AI researchers hear this and their natural response is like, well, surely we could just scale up the training. Scale up the training, scale up the neural net and we could achieve superhuman performance in go. And and that's true. If you scale up the amount of training that you do and you scale up the the size of the neural net and the, the training time, you could eventually overcome that gap. So you could get back to 5000 Elo. But there's a question of like, okay, well how much would you have to scale up by? Like how much is this Monte Carlo tree search buying you? And so the answer is in order to get the raw neural net from like 3000 ELO to 5000 ELO, you would have to scale up the training and the neural net size by 100,000 X. So adding Monte Carlo Tree Search at test time, and to be clear, by Monte Carlo Tree Search, I mean this thing where it's like planning ahead saying like, okay, if I do this and the other player is going to do this, then I'm going to do this. And then, you know, I'll be in this board state that looks quite good for me. That process is getting you the equivalent of scaling up the neural net by 100,000 X in Go. And that's just if you do it at test time. I'm not even talking about you know, like I, I should say the neural net itself is trained using Monte tree search during training time. So if you were to take out Monte tree search at training time as well, you, I, I don't even know what the number is, but you'd have to scale up by like orders and orders of magnitude in order to, uh, to do this without any search. And yeah, so I think that really shows just how important search is now, when you go to a game like poker, the story is actually quite similar. And, um, we actually did a man-machine poker competition in 2015. So I, I should say, we, we for a long time, researchers were not doing search in poker for a variety of reasons, like partly because we didn't really understand how to do it in poker. It's like not as easy to figure out how do you do, what does it mean to do search um, in poker compared to a game like chess or Go? And also because I think people didn't really appreciate how important it was to achieve supreme performance in these prior games. And so we, you know, in 2015, there was this event called the annual computer poker competition where all the different research labs that would work on poker AI would get together. They'd all play their bots against each other and you know, see who wins. And our our bot from Carnegie Mellon actually won that year. And so we decided to do a man-machine poker competition with our bot. We thought it might be superhuman and play against the world's best players. And it ended up losing by, by a pretty wide margin. But what we found, what I noticed during the competition is that the way the humans were playing was very different from how the bot was playing. Like the bot had been training for months trying to get better and better at poker, but when it came time to actually play against the humans, it would just act instantly. Whereas the humans, when they were in a difficult situation, they would sit there and they would think. And they would think for, you know, maybe a few seconds or maybe a few minutes, but, you know, they would think as long as they needed to in order to figure out what should they be doing in this particular situation... And then they would be able to make their move and, and be successful. And so that made me appreciate that like, you know, humans are doing search in poker and it might be the key missing ingredients that would enable us to achieve superhuman performance. And so I decided to investigate like how much of a difference does it make to do search in poker? Um, and I'll, and I'll get a, a little bit, I'll get to like how you actually do that. But I decided to investigate like how much of a difference does it actually make in poker and. You know, what I found is if you add search just on the final round of poker, so there's four rounds of poker, there's the preflop flop flop, turn and river. If you just do search on the river, that is the equivalent of scaling up your training and the size of the model by 100,000 X. And again, so that's, and I didn't know about the go results at the time about how much of an improvement it was adding search to go because that paper hadn't been published yet. But what we found in poker was that adding search on the river increase the performance by the equivalent of scaling up your model by 100,000x. And that blew me away, you know, because over the course of my PhD up until that point, like three years of my PhD, I had managed to scale up the models and scale up the training by, you know, one or two orders of magnitude, like, you know, 10, I think it was like about 10 or 100x. And that was, I thought, a very impressive achievement, you know, to to go like make these things like 100x better, 100x faster. But that is that was just nothing to adding search. You know, adding search, you get a 100,000 X improvement. And so it, it made me appreciate that like everything that we were doing up until that point was just going to be a footnote of my thesis. The, the only thing that really mattered was adding search. And so when I saw that result, the whole research paradigm changed. It all became about adding search. And I spent like the next year just working basically nonstop trying to scale up search in the poker bot. We did another man-machine competition in 2017, and that time we won by a huge margin. And I think almost entirely due to adding search.
0: That's so interesting, Noam. So how do you run search? Because if I'm going back to what you said earlier, finding the Nash equilibrium meant finding this probabilistic description of essentially for every situation, what's the distribution over actions to take? It's not so clear how you connect that to search, because usually search ends up with something where you say, how good is the situation I end up in it doesn't end up with a probability distribution over actions in the final situation
1: yeah okay so this is where it gets a little a little tricky and and the truth is that it it actually is quite difficult to do search in poker and this is why it took so long you know you you asked previously why did it take 20 years after deep blue beating gary kasparov for us to beat humans in poker and I, I think the answer is because figuring out how to do search in poker ended up being trickier than people expected and um And also because people weren't investigating it that much because they didn't appreciate how much of a difference it would make. So there's actually two ways to do search. I'll cover both because they're actually quite different. One way is you've computed an approximation of the Nash equilibrium up until, you know, for for the entire game. This is using your self-play techniques where you've had the bot play against itself for, you know, trillions of iterations. Obviously the game is not big enough, it is too big to store the exact strategy. And so you have to rely on this neural network generalization to store the policy for the entire game. Now that ends up being a problem because you know, your neural net is not perfect. It doesn't have perfect function approximation. So there's going to be errors in, in that approximation and those errors really do matter. And so what you can do is when you get to the later parts of the game, you can say, okay, let me assume that everybody's been playing the Nash equilibrium up until now. There is some probability distribution of what the other player's cards are. There is some probability distribution over what they think my cards are. That defines its own sub game at this point, right? Like you can imagine this like sub game where my distribution of hands is no longer uniform. Like in poker, it usually starts out as uniform, but it doesn't have to be uniform. And so you can imagine this like, you know, mini poker game where now it's no longer uniform. It's like whatever the distribution is if we had both played according to the Nash equilibrium up until now and now we're just going to now now we've like defined a self-contained sub game we can solve this at test time so when we're actually in the middle of a hand i can say okay well there's like you know four actions left in this game i know what the distribution is over my cards i know what the distribution is over your cards it's common knowledge let's just compute the equilibrium now for this sub game and then you can play according to that policy now there are some minor challenges that, that come up when you try to do something like this. You know, the, the exploitability question of like, how do you ensure that you, what you end up computing is a Nash equilibrium. Like you're computing a Nash equilibrium in this subgame. How do you ensure that it's also a Nash equilibrium in the original game? Um, it turns out if you add entropy regularization, that's the easiest way to address this problem. So you're kind of biasing the equilibrium solution to being close to uniform. Um, if you if you add a little bit of that then you then you can actually ensure that this will be a sound strategy that you can play in, in the full game so that is intuitively the way to do it now this ends up being a little tricky because i said you know you're close to the end of the game there's only four actions left if you're earlier in the game it ends up being tricky because you have to you know in chess we have what's called a value function right so if you play out four actions like, okay, I'm going to move this piece, my opponent's going to move this piece, so I'm going to move this piece, you're not at the end of the game yet, but you can still stop there, look at the board, and have a sense of who's winning. And that's, that's the value function. So in AlphaGo and in Deep Blue, you have these functions. In, in AlphaGo, it's a neural network where you plug in the board position, and it will tell you the probability of each player winning. In poker, that's tricky because, like, what do you feed into your value function? You don't know like do you do you feed in you know your cards do you feed in you don't know the opponent's cards so you can't feed in the opponent's cards if it's one thing if you reach the end of the game and then the game is over like that that that's easy to evaluate at least during self-play and so the what it turns out what you need to do is feed into your value function the probability distribution over what you think the other players cards are and what they should think your cards are given the Nash equilibrium policy that you're, you're assuming both players are playing that's a bit counterintuitive you know because it kind of changes the notion of a state like i don't want to go too too far um you know off the deep end with you here but like in standard rl like you know in in chess like what what does it mean what what do, what do you actually care about like what is the state in a game of chess well the state is the board and that's really easy to represent but in poker what is the state Like the state has to be all the information that you need to make the optimal next choice. But just knowing the cards that you have and the actions that have occurred is not enough information in poker to really define the state because it depends on something less observable, depends on on the beliefs of the players, right? Like if, if I have a really bad hand, the value of that situation could be, you know, the value of having a really bad hand could be really bad. But if the other player thinks that I have a really good hand, then the value of that situation is actually quite good, right? Like if I have a busted straight, but the opponent thinks that I have a straight, then I I actually have very high expected value right now. And so in order to determine the optimal next move and in order to determine the value of a state, you need to condition on the beliefs of the players as well. And so that is conceptually, I think, a very tricky thing to, to wrap your head around, but it's actually really key for understanding how to approach the game of poker Compared to a game like chess or go, and I think more broadly in, re- in real life as well, it's a really important conceptual thing to wrap your head around that the value the, the, the notion of a state can include things like beliefs because in the real world there is no perfect information people have access to different amounts of different amounts of information, different information, and you have to account for that when you're deciding what an optimal path
0: forward is that's really interesting to me Noam and surprised me a little bit though with your explanation now it doesn't surprise me as much anymore but the fact that you even for your own cars your own hand you don't just pass on what's the hand but you also pass on to the neural network what all the other players think your hand could be the distribution over that and you have to model that too it's not enough to just pass on your own cards in into the neural net now one thing I haven't played a whole lot of poker but I play poker sometimes and one strategy but I guess it's very different for these AIs is you play without bluffing. You play very straight up for the beginning of the evening and so you build up the belief in other players that you know this person is not going to bluff. They're always like whenever they you know they go in they have the cards to back it And then later you can start exploiting that a little bit, of course, not too much because then it will backfire. But you can then have a threat to other players in the sense that they thought, well, he probably has something real because the whole evening that's been the case whenever they put this much in. That aspect, as I understand, it, doesn't really exist in, in any of the AI players. This notion of modeling a player over the course of an evening that you assume always the same model. You assume every player is a Nash Equilibrium player, right? Which is very interesting to me because it seems like, especially when you go to larger tables where it's not just heads up, but it's, let's say, six or more people at a table, sometimes you, maybe not with the pros, but in, you know, casual games, the way you do well is you start understanding certain players that are playing highly suboptimal and you exploit them because you understand their suboptimality and how they play, right? And it seems like that's something that the AI players you built didn't have and didn't need to have to even win the big tables. Is that right?
1: That's right. And I think a lot of people, including ourselves to some extent, found this surprising. I remember when we announced Libratus and that we managed to beat top humans in Heads Up No Limit Poker. That's two-player no-limit poker. A lot of people were saying like, well, that's great, but it's not going to extend to six-player poker because you know you run into this notion that like there's no more minimax equilibrium that you like the minimax equilibrium is no longer meaningful you have to account for opponent styles and and exploitation and it, it turned out the answer that was that you can take the same techniques you have to scale them you have to figure out how to do you know clever things to account for like the much larger game like six player poker is obviously a much larger game than two player poker because there's like this exponential blow up in the the sequences of actions that can occur but the challenge of like having to adapt to the other players and account for the fact that they're trying to adapt to you That ended up actually not playing, not being a critical part to achieving superhuman performance. And I think there's two lessons there. One is poker is an unusual game. And the fact that you can get away with not modeling other players in poker does not mean that modeling other players is not important in general. I I think it is. And we actually observe in diplomacy that modeling other players is really critical to success in that game. So I, I think partly it's just a quirk of poker that you don't need to worry about this opponent modeling aspect in order to do well in six-player poker. The other thing is that these regret minimization techniques, you know, this, I mentioned, I described earlier, this fictitious play algorithm and like the techniques that we're using are called, more broadly regret minimization techniques that converge to, I mentioned, I said they converge to an Nash equilibrium. That's really only true in two-player poker. That it's only guaranteed to converge to an Nash equilibrium in two-player poker. In, outside of two-player zero-sum games, it converges to this equilibrium concept that I won't really go into. It's called course correlated equilibrium, but it ends up not being that that meaningful. But it, it turns out that that's a theoretical guarantee. And in practice, it ends up doing quite well regardless. And that I think is a general truth that even though these techniques are only guaranteed to really do a, you know, give you guarantees of not losing an expectation when you're playing a two-player zero-sum game, in practice, they do quite well even outside of that paradigm and more broadly. Now, I do wanna emphasize though, I think opponent modeling and player modeling more broadly is actually really important in general. It was not necessary in poker in order to achieve superhuman performance. I certainly think that you could do a lot better if you were to model the other player. It's just that the, the techniques that we had weren't really that strong to do it and it wasn't necessary. But it did end up being necessary in diplomacy. And so we developed techniques to do opponent modeling in diplomacy. And I actually think that those techniques would carry over quite well to poker. So, you know, I think it would be interesting to try that and actually try to to do that in poker now. And, you know, it's just there's been higher priority items to focus on, especially with the emergence of large language models and a lot of interesting research to do there. Um, It's not something that I've I've been working on, but I, I do think it would be interesting to see, like, you know, how strong can you make? a poker bot now that adapts to other players and accounts for their suboptimal play. I think you could actually make a really strong poker bot that would exploit weak players.
0: I'd love to switch to diplomacy and large language models soon, but I have a couple more questions about poker I want to ask you. The first one is when playing poker, you play one round essentially, you know, cars get dealt, you play, somebody wins but then usually you don't just play one round, you keep playing till only one person at the table has any chips left, right? And so is there a difference between optimizing for an individual hand and say, I want to play optimal for this hand versus I want to play optimal to maximize my chances to win the table. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because I think about my own play and maybe it's flawed, but I tend to think the larger the table is, The more important it is to early on accumulate an advantage and collect the chips from the weaker players, because once you get to the heads up, you need to be ahead and, and it's maybe better to have, you know, and given there's so much luck involved, it's maybe better to play a bit more risky and have a chance of being the one that comes out with a larger stack of chips with some chance, but also a high chance of just busting out rather than being the one that stays in the middle and has the, the middle number of chips at the table, and then ultimately gets, loses anyway against the one who has the biggest stack?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So there's two main versions of poker. So one is tournament poker, and one is cash game poker. So cash games are, you know, you buy in with like, you know, $10 or $100 or whatever, and you can cash out whenever you want with however much money you have at the table. And that's, that's the version of poker that we were focused on. The other version of poker is tournaments, where you buy in for a fixed amount and you play until only one player is left. And then there's some payout structure depending on if you finished first or second or third. There are a few added complications when you go when you look at tournament poker, but it's actually not that difficult to overcome. It ends up like, you know, it ends up being a little bit more difficult to to score because you have to play, you know, if, if you're playing in a cash game and you want to evaluate how good is your bot in a cash game. Well, you can look at each hand individually and say, like, okay, well, I've played like 10,000 hands. How much money has the bot made in expectation over? You know, how much money has the bot made over those 10,000 hands? If you want to evaluate how good your bot is in a tournament, you have to play whole tournaments to get one sample. And so you might have to play like a 100 or a 1,000 tournaments in order to get a statistically significant measure of whether your bot is actually good. Because poker is a very high variance game. I think. I think a lot of people don't appreciate just how high variance poker is. Like you can play poker for a full year and make money and actually be a losing player because you just got lucky. It's really like the highest variance game that people play seriously. And so that's the main reason why we just, you know, didn't really focus on tournament poker. The added complications of like, you know, you don't view each hand individually. You have to view it as like a sequence of hands. It ends up actually not being a big problem in practice when you're, when you use neural nets. Because in a cash game, the reward at the end of a hand is how much money you won or lost in that hand. And now in tournament poker, you just have to modify that to be like, okay, what's the probability that I end up winning the tournament or losing the tournament? That is a totally fine signal. It's just like you're going to need a lot more samples now in order to, uh, to learn how to play tournament poker. But it's definitely an addressable thing that we, we know how to
0: address. Last question before we switch to diplomacy and, and language models and so forth. Did you ever consider... I imagine not, but I got to ask, do you ever consider just quietly running your bot? Is that even allowed? Can you run your bot? And, you know, is that how your bank account gets filled right now? You have your bot just running, (laughs) playing online poker, and that's just, you know, passive income. You're just earning while we're talking here.
1: I definitely thought about it at various points during my PhD. I've I've been approached by, you know, various shady or less shady organizations asking me to, you know, supply them with the poker bot that they could use to run online. It's not a good idea for several reasons. First of all, you know, the code is the property of CMU. So it's, uh, you know, not my place to to run that. I mean, I could probably just code it from scratch and do that. But, you know, that's still, there's still a laundry list of issues with that. One issue is that I think, you know, the poker sites invest a lot in combating poker bots. So they will, they have all these like different security mechanisms to like make sure that the people that are playing are, are playing honestly without the use of assistant software, so they'll you know see what programs are running on your computer. They'll also like look and see like are, is the person playing in a style that's very similar to how a bot would play, you know? Because like you can compute these bots, and it's kind of like we we observe this a lot with AI that you can train these systems totally independently, and they'll end up converging to similar things. And so you can compare like okay, how does if this person is playing in a way that's very similar to how the poker bots AI. Says that a AI would play, then you can like flag that as questionable, and you can like you know what they'll ask you to do, and that's this this happens sometimes, and so they'll ask the person, we want you to prove that you are able to play poker this well with a camera in your room now. So we want you to record yourself playing poker with a camera, and we want to make sure that you know there's no other AI assistant software helping you out while you're playing. If it's a really serious case, they'll actually insist you know, they'll freeze your account and say, in order to unfreeze it, you have to come to our office and play poker here to prove that you are as good as, as we're observing. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's, there's like other, you know, red flags that they can observe. So for example, if somebody's like repeatedly withdrawing money from their account, then that's a sign that they might be running, you know, a bot because poker players don't usually withdraw money from their accounts. They usually just like leave it in there until they lose it all. And so if somebody is like, you know, constantly withdrawing money, trying to keep their, their bank account minimal because they're afraid that they might get flagged as a bot and have their account frozen. Then that's that's a sign that they, you know, might be suspicious. So th- there's a lot of risk with running this kind of operation. The other thing is that it's actually pretty difficult to be profitable playing poker these days. People have gotten so good at poker, and a lot of the weaker players have dropped out of the game because the field has gotten so strong that the margins have gotten a lot smaller. And so I think there's not as much money in Online professional poker as there used to be. And the other thing is, you know, just from a career standpoint, you know, I, I decided that that's just not what I want to do with my life. I think we're in a, a really special time that, you know, AI research is the, you know, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. I really hit the jackpot with my career. I love what I do. I want to keep doing research. And, and fortunately, you know, it actually ends up paying pretty well. So I don't think that it would actually be a more profitable thing to, you know, just leave all that behind and try to run poker bots as a full-time business. So I have no interest in running poker bots online. Uh, never got into that, and um, yeah, I don't see that changing.
0: That's so interesting. Thanks for sharing uh, all the. I mean, all the non AI aspects are very interesting to me too. With all all the security measures they're taking. Now switching gears from poker, you then moved on to working on AI for the game of diplomacy. Probably not as well known a game for everybody. So maybe you can explain what is diplomacy? Well, from there, what were the challenges? And what did you achieve?
1: Yeah, after Pluribus, so we announced Pluribus in 2019. So that was a six player poker bot. We were deciding what to work on next. And, um, you know, we wanted a game. Well, we wanted a challenge problem that would still would just be like, you know, equally impressive if we were to succeed in that challenge. And You know, it isn't easy to figure out what that could be. I mean, and the motivation for this is that if you look at the history of AI, I mean, chess took decades for AI to solve. Go took another 20 years. Poker took decades. But the pace of AI progress had been progressing so quickly that it wasn't really clear what a similar challenge would look like. People had proposed various games before. So there was a paper that came out proposing that this cooperative card game called Hanabi be the next challenge problem because it's a cooperative game. Turns out that ended up, you know, being solved. We actually managed to make a superhuman AI for it in like, you know, six months. And then there was, you know, a lot of people were looking at StarCraft and Dota 2. Open OpenAI worked on Dota 2 and DeepMind was working on StarCraft. Both of them succeeded within like a couple of years. And it became clear that if we really wanted to have a, a truly impactful result and something that was like not addressable using existing techniques, we had to think really ambitiously. And so we landed on the game Diplomacy. And there were a few reasons for this. So Diplomacy is this natural language negotiation game. The way the game works, there's seven players. It's kind of like a mix between Risk, the board game Risk, the TV show Survivor, and the card game Poker. And you have these like complex negotiations that go on where the only way that you can win is by convincing other players to work with you. So most of the game actually takes place in some back room where you're talking one-on-one with this other person, trying to convince them to work with you. And so like every turn consists of 15 minutes of these like one-on-one negotiations happening in private between all the players. And then after that negotiation period, everybody will write down what their moves are and execute them simultaneously. So, you know, you promise people that you'll do something and then when you actually write down your moves, there's like this big question mark of if you're actually going to follow through on that. Now, the way the game works, it, it takes place at the onset of World War One, so. You play as one of the seven great powers of Europe, England, France, Germany, Austria-Hungary, Turkey, Russia, and Italy. And the way you win is by controlling a majority of the board. Now, in practice, that rarely happens because if somebody actually ends up gaining, like, coming close to half the board, controlling half the board, then the other players will realize what's going on, team up with each other, and stop that from happening. But in practice, you, you get a score that's proportional to how much of the board you end up controlling at the end. And the only way that you can win is really by working with other players. And so we thought that this would be a really interesting game to look at because so much of the gameplay is happening in natural language negotiations between these players. And on top of that, the conversations are not public. Like these are not happening at the game board. These are actually happening in private between these players. And so you have to reason about what are these conversations that the other players are having behind my back? Are they conspiring against me without me knowing? And then also like, the moves are happening simultaneously. So you have this imperfect information aspect in the moves. And then also a big part of the game is the human nature to it. You know, the fact that humans are not perfectly rational and you're playing with somebody that has these very, very human emotions that if you backstab them and betray them, they're going to get really angry at you and spend the whole game trying to get back at you. Like that's not something that a bot necessarily would do, but it's something that the bot has to account for if it's playing with a human. And so all these like, human modeling aspects come into play when we didn't really see that being necessary in poker. And so for all these reasons, we thought, you know, if you can make an AI that could actually play diplomacy and beat humans at it, then that would be a really surprising and and, and cool achievement. And we would learn important lessons along the way. So that's why we, ch- we chose diplomacy. And it also felt like a good time because, you know, in 2019, you had GPT-2 come out. It, there was a lot of progress with language models being made. And, and we felt like, whereas before diplomacy was like viewed as this impossible grand challenge, it was suddenly more achievable. I mean, people had been working on AI for diplomacy for a long time. It was proposed as a, as a benchmark all the way back in the eighties, actually. But the thought that you could play the full game of diplomacy in natural language was just like, you know, outrageous. And we felt like in 2019, we thought it would be very difficult, really surprising if we succeeded, but it wasn't out of the realm of possibility anymore. So that's, that's why we chose Diplomacy.
0: Fascinating game. And actually, personally, I, I've never played that game. But I remember as a kid, 10 years old, browsing through possible board games to purchase. And Diplomacy, I remember reading the rules and descriptions and being like, that sounds like an amazing game. But this is before video games. You had to play it as a board game. And yeah, I was like, I don't know if I can ever find seven people to play this game. Because it's a very a game that plays for a long time, right? You can play for hours and hours and my parents were like yeah we're not we're not playing this game but i'm i'm glad now this this game is is uh, in, in my life in some sense finally
1: yeah i mean it's it's definitely like it's a game that usually takes about 6 hours to play and you know because of that people get really invested in it you can be allied with somebody for 4 hours working really well with them and then all of a sudden they they backstab you on the and, and completely ruin your chances of winning and you know that that really hurts at, at an emotional level so people take it very personally and so it's It's not an easy game to play. A lot of people really dislike it for this reason, but it is a unique game in that respect. I would describe it as a game that is as close to real life as you can get.
0: Now, what did you do to crack it?
1: Yeah, so we decided to start with a a simplified version of diplomacy where there was no natural language communication, just focused on, on the moves in the game. And that ended up being a surprisingly difficult challenge on its own because, again, in poker you just compute the Nash equilibrium or approximated and you you end up achieving superhuman performance. We actually found in diplomacy that ends up not being true. If you just train a bot completely from scratch with no human data in diplomacy, you will not achieve superhuman performance. And that actually surprised a lot of reinforcement learning researchers. There, I, I think there was this notion that because this paradigm had worked so well for chess and go and poker that it could work for any game. But that that's actually not the case. And You know, intuitively, the reason for this is because the bot ends up getting really good at playing with other copies of itself, but not understanding how to play with humans. It's like, it's as if you had trained a bot, you know, imagine um, you train a bot completely from scratch to navigate traffic in the US without any human data, and it might learn to drive on the left side of the road. That's a totally reasonable equilibrium for it to arrive at. If all the other drivers are also driving on the left side of the road, then it works out fine. But if you then stick it in a situation with real human drivers in the US, it's gonna crash and it's gonna do terribly. And similarly, you know, you can imagine in a negotiation game, if you were to train a bot completely from scratch without any exposure to English, it will learn to communicate, it could learn to communicate, but it will learn to communicate in some gibberish robot language that isn't how humans communicate. And so when you stick it in a game with a bunch of English speakers, it's not going to do well. So I think this is actually one of the most important takeaways from the diplomacy work that in order to do well in these not two-player zero-sum games, in order to do well in games that involve cooperation, you have to have human data if the game is sufficiently complicated. And that's actually like, I I think it was not the majority opinion in the multi-agent AI space for a long time. I still don't know if it is, but it's something that I feel very strongly is the case that if you want to achieve cooperation with humans, then you need to use human data if the domain is sufficiently complicated. And so that that's i think one of the major takeaways and the way we accomplish this at diplomacy is by leveraging human data so we found that if you bring we found this giant data set from a website called webdiplomacy.net where they've recorded all the games that people have played on the site for the past 20 years so we trained a model on that data to imitate how humans play and then we combine that with self-play so Basically, this is like still ignoring the language aspect of the game. Just, just looking at moves in the game, we're trying to play this version of the game where players don't communicate in natural language. We still want to do well. What you could do is like take these games, do supervised learning on it. So try to create this like model of how a human would play diplomacy and then stick our bot in a game with six of these, you know, quasi-human players and try to figure out how to beat them. So essentially you train a best response to the human supervised learning models. This ends up not doing very well because you end up overfitting. And this is, I think, a classic reinforcement learning problem where you just like, you know, you don't have enough data. You end up overfitting to the quirks of your, you know, virtual setup. And the way we got around this is I think actually quite similar to how a lot of RL researchers get around this is with regularization. So we found that if we add search and improve, like we kind of have the other players, like we have this model of the human players that's trained through supervised learning on human data, but then we also add search to it so that it can adapt to our strategy, we find that that makes our strategy more robust to the players not playing exactly according to the supervised learning model. And when we then take that model that's played with these like uh, search-based human imitation models, and we play with real humans, then it ends up doing a lot better. So that's one of the techniques that we use. And we also we end up doing that for the non-language version of diplomacy. We also end up using that for the for the full natural language version of diplomacy. So that's the non-language aspect. And then the language aspect there, there's a, there's a lot going on there. So, you know, first, how do we even have the bot learn to communicate with the other players? We, in addition to like the moves in the game, we also have all the dialogue that the players have said to each other in this giant data set of like 20 years of human games. So we first take a pre-trained model trained on like, you know, general internet data. And then we fine tune it on these games of diplomacy. And so we end up with the bot that can communicate in a very like human like style and in talking about things in diplomacy. The problem is that this ends up not being very grounded to what's going on in the game itself, you know, so we can say things like, oh, I'm going to support your unit from a to B when the other player doesn't actually have a unit in a. So there is this disconnect between like what's going on in the game and what's going on in the, the, the dialogue. And so what we do is we train the model to condition its dialogue generation on the state of the board. So we actually feed into the context, the state of the board and the moves that we want, we intend to make and the moves that we would like our dialogue partner to make. And then by conditioning on those, it's able to have a much more grounded conversation where the dialogue is now reflecting what, you know we would like to move what we, what we would like to do strategically and what we would like the other player to do strategically. So we have our reinforcement learning algorithm come up with like a good set of moves for ourselves and a good set of moves for what we'd like the other player to do. And then we condition the dialogue generation on that so that it's communicating with those intentions in mind. And you, you see that in the dialogue that it will then say things like, I'm going to move this unit from here to here. or I'm going to support your unit moving from here to here. It, it's also much more human like than that like it will have you know broad conversations about like oh i think this player is like getting really powerful and we should you know work together against them and so it'll have like these you know pretty wide spectrum of conversations but it will be much more grounded in what's actually happening in the game and so that ended up working out surprisingly well we we actually played this bot in an online diplomacy league with real human players they did not know it was a bot we didn't tell them it was a bot and over the course of i think it was like 40 40 games, the bot ended up placing in the top 10% of human players in the tournament, in, in the league. And surprisingly, nobody figured out that it was a bot over, these, over those 40 games. These games would last like hours and it would have like, you know, hundreds of back and forth conversations with these players. And still they thought it was a human the whole time. And we, we actually told the players after the experiment completed that it was a bot and they were shocked. They thought they were playing with another human the whole time. They didn't see anything suspicious about it. And, you know, that that came as a a big surprise to us. I mean, we we were really concerned that, like, we would deploy this bot and, like, within two games, they might figure out that it's a bot and it would ruin the whole experiments. But, you know, we had somebody constantly watching the games with their finger on this big red button that would shut everything down if, like, somebody started getting suspicious so we could, like, intervene and, you know, try to salvage the experiment because, you know, as soon as somebody figures out that there's a bot in this league, you know, they're always going to be suspicious of bots after that point. But fortunately, that never happened, and the dialogue ended up being surprisingly human-like.
0: It's fascinating how well it can do in diplomacy. Diplomacy is very connected. It's about strategizing warfare. Obviously, not, maybe not, not the goal, but seems like it would be similar to strategizing other things. Business relations, maybe political agreements on things like climate, climate accords, and things like that. Have you given it any thought how what you built for diplomacy could maybe play a role in this real-world negotiations and strategy developments.
1: Yeah, I, I think what's really cool about the game of diplomacy is that it's the most human-like game out there. I mean, I think you're communicating in natural language with real human players. You have to account for the fact that these are players that play emotionally, that they're not playing perfectly rationally like machines. And all those things end up forcing you to um, develop new techniques that, that do end up having applications to the real world. So I do think the techniques are really important for extending these AI techniques to the real world. I mean, that's, that's been, that's always been the promise of AI, right? Especially when it comes to games. Like we, we justify the AI research on games by saying that eventually these techniques will be applicable to the real world and that they'll have real world impact. I think what's really exciting is that we're finally starting to see that, that promise be fulfilled. And yeah, I do think that the techniques that we've used in diplomacy and the techniques that have also been used in poker to some extent will have real implications for the real world. Now, going right now to real world negotiations, I I think it's hard. I think it depends on the domain. If you start looking at like international relations, like these kinds of negotiations, there is a lot of nuance and there's a lot that you have to understand about the world in order to contribute to those negotiations in a game like diplomacy it's relatively easy because everything you need to know about is on this board like there's a lot of personality stuff that you have to account for which like you know that's not easy but we we can do it but as far as like you know what you're negotiating over that's all on the board in this self-contained game when you start going to like business negotiations or like international negotiations you have to understand things about like business models things about like you know the history of various countries there's a lot more going on so i think that that isn't going to happen imminently i i do think that we will get there eventually and i think that the implications will be pretty powerful i think it's worth starting to think about what those implications are now i think the more likely path is that we'll see simpler negotiations being handled by ai in the near future and then the level of complexity will grow over time. And there's certainly like certain kinds of negotiations where I think you could see AIs playing a role in the near future. Um, I think negotiations over over prices, for example, will probably be handled by by an AI uh, in the not too distant future, I think. So if you're negotiating over the price of a hotel room or the price of like an airline ticket, or you know, I think a lot of business to business negotiations over pricing, that will probably, probably also be handled by AI in the not too distant future. And so I think that that will be really cool to look forward to. And I think that that will um, just make, make the economy much more efficient. I'm really looking forward to that. I think that has a lot of positive uh, outcomes for the world. And then I think that the level of complexity will grow over time.
0: Very curious to see that all play out. Now, Noam, currently you're at OpenAI, and your current direction is planning, reasoning, and self-play in language models. So the big models like ChatGPT and so forth that many people, of course, have have tried out. These kind of models apparently are going to have similar intelligence to them as what you put into the poker and diplomacy bots. Can you say more, what are the opportunities here and what are the challenges?
1: I think there's a lot of interesting research left to be done in language models. I think one of the things that I've taken away from the game space is the power and how effective it is to do planning in these games. So I mentioned, you know, In Go, if you add planning, it increases... It's like the equivalent of increasing your model and training by 100,000x. And the same thing is true in poker. If you add search in poker, it's the equivalent of increasing the model size and training by 100,000x. And I think you can do something similar in language models. It's not really clear how you do it yet, but I I think that there is an opportunity there. And I think this is really important because, you know, if you look at the cost of how... know how much it costs to train these language models today, it's really expensive. And we're going to see it scale up. I'm sure the models are going to get bigger and bigger and trained for longer, but you're not going to be able to scale them up by a hundred thousand X, at least for the foreseeable future. And in a, in a AI paradigm where scale is the key thing, there's a question of like, okay, well, if you can't scale up the model during pre-training beyond a certain point, then how do you scale it up further? And I think the answer is, you scale up the amount of inference cost. The language models typically these days, they act, they respond very quickly. If you ask it a question, it can give you an answer in milliseconds or you know maybe seconds at most. But for a lot of, a lot of applications, you don't need a response immediately. You can wait a minute or an hour or, or even a week sometimes to get a response. You, know, you can think of like, uh, if you ask the model to write a contract for you, a legal, a legal contract you don't need that in five seconds. You you can wait like a minute for a really high quality answer. And, you know, thinking like if you wanted to write a novel, that could take a full week. But I, I think if it's, and obviously the inference cost would be a lot higher in that case. But if it's something like writing the next Harry Potter, then that seems totally worth it to spend, you know, a thousand times the inference cost or to, to find a new life-saving drug or to prove the Riemann hypothesis or, or any of these things. There's a lot of applications where it would be worth it to spend orders of magnitude more on inference in order to achieve the equivalent output that you would get from a, a model that's orders of magnitude bigger. And so I think those are the questions that I'm, I'm interested in investigating and researching going forward.
0: Very exciting. Now, one could also argue that in principle, the training time is a one-time cost and inference has to happen for everybody, but maybe it's okay. Maybe it runs on your phone. And you already own the phone, so you're not really paying much inference cost compared to doing, you know, cloud API calls to to something. But it does seem like there. It might depend on somehow on how often you train versus how often you run inference. And right now, inference is run much more often, right?
1: Yeah, I think it. I think it absolutely depends on the domain. I mean, there's some domains where, you know, you you want to pay almost all of the cost up front and then have like minimal I- inference cost. And I think, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, if you're doing web search, I think that's, that's a, a classic example where you're going to get tons of queries and you want responses as soon as possible. But there are other domains where, you know, it's okay if you only run it a few times. And I think actually like, you know, Go is a good example of this where it's okay if the model takes like, you know, 30 seconds to think about what its next move is going to be. And, you know, in theory, you could move that all to pre-training, but then your pre-training is going to cost a hundred thousand times more. And so you'd much rather shift a lot of that burden to test time, beat the world champion once. And, you know, that's, that's fine. Like I said, if you're developing a life-saving drug, you probably don't need to develop like a hundred million life-saving drugs. You know, if you can just generate five, um, I think that would be a huge deal and writing a prize-winning novel. You might not need a hundred million of those, but um, if you could just generate a few, then that would be a big deal. And so a lot of these, there's there's a lot of applications where if it's a cost, if it's a trade-off between scaling pre-training by a hundred thousand X or scaling inference by a hundred thousand X, it would be worth it to scale the inference by a hundred thousand X instead.
0: I love these examples. One, one thing that's on, on my mind related to this is video prediction, because you're saying write, writing a novel, once you write the novel, maybe it can be turned into uh, a full movie, right? Right now in video prediction, there's not a whole lot of time spent at inference either. So it seems like maybe the same thing could be true there, moving more compute into the inference cycles.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. I don't I don't think this is limited to any particular domain. I think that it really is something that could be applied more broadly. Yeah, I think that that's, that's another good example. I mean, I, I think the, the, really the question comes down to the domain. Like, are there domains where you are willing to pay a much higher inference cost compared to uh, the training cost? Now, I should say this. There's a lot of challenges that come along with this. I mean, in games, it's like relatively straightforward. You know, there's certainly questions around how do you do search in a game like poker? One of the nice things about a game is that you have a well-defined Ground truth reward at the end of a trajectory. So, if you play chess, you can do self play. Eventually, you'll reach the end of the game and you'll know who's won and who's lost. In things like, you know, language, it's much more difficult to say, like, okay, well, you know, there's like these different paths that I can go down and like which one is better than the other. That depends on how good your, you know, how good your reward model is or if you have like good human feedback. There's a lot of question marks around how do you. Carry these techniques over to these less clear-cut domains, but you know that's that's what research is all about—is figuring out how do you address these problems. And you know, to some extent, we encounter this in the game of diplomacy. In diplomacy, we have these models of how humans might play, but they don't really match up with like how humans actually play. And so we had to figure out how do we do planning in this game, even though we don't really know how it's going to carry over to the real world. And we were able to do that. Uh, and so I think that some of those techniques will extend more broadly. We might have to come up with new techniques too, but I'm looking forward to the challenge.
0: Switching gears, no, I'm Curious. Where did you grow up, and what got you excited about artificial intelligence?
1: I was born in Israel. I moved to New Jersey when I was two years old. I uh, grew up there, and I'd actually always been interested in artificial intelligence from a from an early age. I started trying programming when I was uh, 10 years old. Just you know, a little bit on, not not too seriously. I just like found a. Somebody gave me a textbook on programming, and I tried to implement like a few small games myself. When I was in high school, I took a computer science class, and one of the tasks was to generate, uh, was to program this game called, I think it was called Gomoku or something, where it's like you have to get five in a row. It's kind of like tic tac toe, but you have to get five in a row instead of three in a row. And there was no AI component to that project, but I was really interested in like, could you make a, a computer player, like an AI for this game? And so just like kind of on my own, I, I, started doing that. And I, I, I thought it was really interesting. And, you know, I, I ended up not going down. I, I majored in computer science, but I decided not to pursue AI at the time in part because, you know, this was back in like 2009, 2010. AI was, was not a very hot thing back then. I remember talking to various professors about like, what should I be doing with my career? And back then they were saying like, you don't go into AI. AI is a dead field nothing's happening and like all the techniques haven't worked out. I ended up actually going into finance. So I I worked in algorithmic trading for a couple of years. It was really fun, but I didn't find it particularly rewarding. Um, It's not what I wanted to do with my life. And uh, it became clear to me within a couple of years after undergrad that what I really wanted to do with my life was research. Now, I didn't have any research experience in undergrad. And so obviously getting into a, a, a competitive PhD program without any research experiences not the easiest thing to do so i went to the federal reserve for two years and worked as a research assistant actually researching um, algorithmic trading in financial markets and my plan was to do a phd in economics but while i was there i realized what i really enjoyed doing was was building things um, i really enjoyed a lot of the um you know computer science and statistics work and and i thought like a phd in economics it would would be cool but what i really want to do is a phd in uh in computer science focused on artificial intelligence and and computational game theory. And, you know, again, this was still in 2012. AI hadn't really taken off at that point. But regardless, I, I felt like this is what I want to do with my life. And I started the PhD in 2012. I actually started a master's first and, and then continued to the PhD. And conveniently, there was a professor that was looking for somebody to do research on AI for poker. And it felt like the perfect intersection of like all the things that I was interested in. I mean, I was interested in AI. I was interested in game theory. I had played poker in, in college and always enjoyed the game as you know, kind of like the strategic aspects of the game. And so actually, even when I was in college, I decided as a side project to try to make an AI for poker. It did not work out very well, but it was really interesting and I had a lot of fun doing it. And so, you know, to think like, oh, I'm going to get paid, you know, for five years to be able to like work on this. It's like, I would do this for free. I'd like as a side thing, like, this is great. So I, I happened to, you know, end up at the right place at the right time. And, uh, you know, we got, got very lucky in that respect. And And fortunately, also, the whole field of AI blew up during
0: my PhD, and that was great to see as well. Very good timing. And I I think, I mean, in terms of PhD, in my opinion, it pretty much has to feel like something you would want to do for free as a side project, because it's not like you're really getting paid (laughs) during PhD barely enough to, to make ends meet, right? And it's just, I feel like that's the big opportunity. It's it's four or five years to do the things that are just what you really want to be doing, assuming you find the right lab, the right advisor that, you know, where you have the right freedom to do exactly, you know, explore and, and do the things you want to do. Now, one final question, Um, Obviously, you keep very busy. Um, what are some things you do to relax?
1: Yeah, I have friends over for uh, board game nights every once in a while, uh, like once a week. Uh, sometimes sometimes play poker casually, never for, for very high stakes, usually just like, $10, $20 buy in games. Um, you know, I'm really interested in the, the, the strategy and the psychology of the game rather than like, you know, the gambling aspect itself. Though I, I did actually recently play in a high stakes game with $20,000 buy ins. I actually got bought in, fortunately, so I didn't have to pay that out of pocket and ended up doing quite well. I ended up walking away with $40,000 oh. that I, I split with the person that, that sponsored me, fortunately. So that was. Truly a once-in-a-lifetime experience. You know, aside from those things, I try to keep in shape. I've I gone into uh, bouldering recently, as a lot of tech people do. And I'm looking forward to a lot of great traveling this year. I see Mal is going to be in Hawaii. I'm looking forward to that. And uh, I'll be going to Ichkai as well in Macau.
0: Yeah, great destinations. <laughs> well, Noam, thanks so much for making the time. Really enjoyed this conversation.
1: Well, it was a great being here and you know, always happy to talk.